Perspectives on a Pandemic is the project and original work of Alex Lambert, bringing a variety of voices on our current global situation. It is a production of the Sager Broadus Gallery Artists in Residence Program in KBIA. Born in Harlem, New York, Dr. Lemney Perez is a Dominican-American writer and psychologist. Dr. Perez's research focuses on the intersectionality of gender studies, colorism, ethnic identity development, and mental health outcomes among Dominican women in Washington Heights, New York. She lives and works in New York where she operates a wellness and life coaching practice and volunteers at COVID Care Network, New York City. Please welcome Dr. Lemney Perez. I can't thank you enough for being here. I think this is, uh, you know, it's, there's been an enormous amount of trauma um, leading up to this week. And then this week, it just got that much more intensified. So I think it's a, it's a good time to be talking to you. So I guess I wanted to start out by just asking you to talk a little bit about the work that you do and some of the different organizations that you work with. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Alex. <laughs> it's, it's certainly um, a new world for sure. You know, um, it's, it's been so busy and, and you're so right about, you know, we were having a rough couple of months and then everything, um, you know, just got, got thrown into high speed here as if it wasn't already. So this, this has been a time that is, is calling upon us to really reflect on, you know, our, just our, our state. Um, and, and like you mentioned, um, in terms of the work that I've been doing, that's been my saving grace. You know, I think some of us kind of get busy doing things to, to make sense of, of what's happening. And, and I'm certainly not no exception to that. Some of the work that I've been doing has, has led me to do things that I never thought I would be doing at all. So for instance, um, I am a trained clinical psychologist um, and I was in the process of... Is it I can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all, I mean, it's, you know, part of the story. It's part of the story. It's, it's, um, it's been pretty busy. I'm in Washington Heights um, and the, the hospital um, the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital is right by me. And so um, they've been seeing a lot of cases and it's, it's just been um, around the clock for the most part. Although um, lately it has um, de-escalated a little bit in prevalence, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it's been pretty busy. I was planning on getting licensed in New York. I was in California for about 15 years um, working there and when I came over to New York, my exam was canceled because of COVID. Um, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, well, I can't just kind of like sit around and just wait because it, it was kind of um, uncertain what was gonna happen next. And so I decided to start a practice in coaching. I was just about done with the certification in, in coaching and I decided to um, establish Pure Lotus Wellness um, and in that private practice and coaching, I've been seeing people um, and talking with them about their anxiety and their depression, you know, difficulties with like relationships and stress, chronic pain, um, just kind of like different areas and different things that have been exacerbated. Speaking to lots of moms, you know, who are, you know, struggling with multiple roles. Also, there was kind of like this slew and this call for people to volunteer. Um, and so, 
you know, the, the, the altruistic person in me. I was like, all right, let's go get him, you know? And, <laughs> you know, um, I had looked at a, a whole bunch of different opportunities that were available through the state. Um, Governor Cuomo had put out a call, um, and unfortunately, I was not um, selected because of the licensing issue. Um, but there was this one grassroots organization called NYC COVID Care Network, um, where mm-hmm. they were kind of like soliciting different um, healers and caregivers, um, anywhere from psychiatrists to licensed clinical social workers to coaches, etc. And I said, okay, here's my jam. Like, here's an opportunity, right? Um, and super, super grassroots, like I was mentioning, where, you know, they, they really facilitate services and, and serve care workers, anybody working on the front line, anyone who's an essential worker, their family members and the uninsured. And so- Which is amazing. It's absolutely wonderful because there's so many people in New York right now who are, you know, handling these these jobs, um, delivering these foods, you know, the nurses, you know, coming out of, uh, out of the hospital, you know, at seven o'clock, eight o'clock shift change, um, and just providing those services for them. But it, it's been a challenge there because the issues that we've been seeing is, is that um, people are not necessarily as apt. There, there's a frustration and a desire for help and support, but, but there's been limitations, um, I feel, in terms of um, the stigma that's associated with mental health care, particularly for frontline workers, especially those working in hospital settings, and the implications of demonstrating any type of need for help, you know? Which is so, you know, I just, the stigma is so... Uh, painful to hear about because how could you not have a human response to all of this? There shouldn't be a stigma. How can we normalize this for for people and how can we increase accessibility to services um, so that people can tap into resources that are going to help them to improve their conditions? You know, I, I think that APA, the American Psychological Association, has done a really good job at addressing and dealing with, you know, a lot of these things that have been happening. In fact, you know, on Thursday, we, we've been having um, town halls every week. The CEO and the president of APA, um, Sandy Schulman and, and Arthur Evans, and they this week they're, they're going to be talking about racism pandemic. Um, and that that's really necessary in terms of you know, kind of like identifying one out of three Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression. We're like demonstrating, you know, signs and symptoms and that's significant, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good grip of, you know, nearly close to half. And so, you know, the impact on the children, the suicidality and, and those types of like uh, incidences increasing because of the isolation um, and how isolation is being linked to inflammation. And, and related to COVID care. Um, so they, it's, it's just COVID-19 rather. So it's, it's just been really, everything's been intertwined um, and impacting all, all of yeah, it. And I'm especially interested in, because so, you know, before the protests, already the COVID-19 is affecting black and brown communities at a higher rate. And now we have this added both stress and kind of horror and also uh, there's concerns about health risks with the pro, you know, it's, it just be- makes it that much more complicated and putting that much more pressure and stresses on communities. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit, the specificity of that? And, and that's, that's a wonderful question. Like, 
there's been this long-standing social, economic, and political inequality that has occurred. You know, obviously before our lifetimes, you know, um, it has yes. been kind of like the stru- structural fabric of what of how our nation was built and created and designed, um, and you know, it's it's um, it's quite devastating um, to see um, how the disparities during crises only grow larger. You know, where you see rich getting richer and the poor getting poor, um, and how the efforts to support um, those have-nots um, has has been has not been um, fruitful or successful, and and very complicated, and leading to you know frustrations and 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 these feelings of depression and anxiety and and fears of how to take care of our families. Um, that really leave people and deliver folks to kind of like desperate measures. Um, I, I can see how in communities of color, particularly in mine, like I had mentioned, I, I was raised in Washington Heights, which is a predominantly Dominican um, community. Um, and I've lived on a street where like the majority of people have lived there for 40 years. So it's, it's home, everyone knows each other, it's a big family. And, and we've really resorted to taking care of each other. And I, I was, you know, talking about how, you know, we've been impacted by four deaths um, yeah. of, of uh, different kind of like what, what I consider our extended family members, but, you know, community members um, and, and our inability to really mourn their loss um, in, in a way that, that feels healing, um, that feels reparative in light of all the, the trauma that we're all experiencing, um, it, it just adds more salt to the wound, you know? So yeah. we've been, you, please. Hey, uh, you said you're making a documentary about your block. I'm super interested in this. Sure, so I, I've been working on a documentary about um, the changes that have been happening, particularly on my block, um, where I, I interviewed different generations of of people, four or five generations, four, I won't say five, <laughs> stretching it there, <laughs> four <laughs> generations of, of community members um, telling their stories about what it's like um, to live in Washington Heights as, as Dominicans and, and just the changes that they've seen in terms of kind of like gentrification um, and, and just to see our footprints being wiped off after kind of like, you know, growing and creating and establishing this really rich and culturally, uh, you know, culturally rich um, neighborhood um, to just kind of see it wiped away. And, and of course, everything changes, right? Change is a constant. However, some changes are violent, you know, and when you see an entire block on Broadway is boarded up because, you know, they can't afford the rent um, because there's there's new um, owners to the buildings. I mean, even my mom had difficulties with going to court as well after being there, you know, for 45 years in this one particular apartment um, and, you know, dealing with really um, difficult um, landlords who want to triple and quadruple the rents by, you know, removing these these very loyal tenants. You know, and so like that—that's very painful. Um, Incredibly painful. Absolutely, like you know, where else is she supposed to go? Like she goes and plays her bingo, you know, at the old seniors' home, you know, just a block away. You know, everyone in the neighborhood speaks Spanish. 
she doesn't really have to extend herself. Like she's she's at home there, and so she if she gets she gets removed, where does she go? So um, those are the challenges that I think we're facing um, as community members, um, and just just facing discrimination overall in general. You know, for for me, I have five degrees. You know, <laughs> and and oh my gosh, yeah, you know, these things are still things that that we face and we contend with. So it, it, it's been really difficult. And, and I think, you know, race and class and, um, you know, and politics is something that we grew up with. You know, I feel like you know, children as, as early as four or five years old are already um, can identify differences in race, you know. And yes. so like at this age, I, I can even remember my own experience noticing that I was not a particular color. And because of that, I didn't have the opportunity to be seen in a, in a particular light. Or when I would see the spaces where I did have privilege and growing up in the Dominican Republic, you know, the disparities there are even more wide, you know, in a developing country, being a child there and being in a vehicle and then seeing another child outside of that vehicle cleaning up the car and trying to understand why do I have shoes? Why am I sitting in this car? And why is this child outside barefoot cleaning my car, right? Or my parents' car. Um, The, those things really kind of like hit home about the haves and have-nots and, and, and the differences in class and where you have power and where you don't, you know? And so like I think that for the most part in this work, we're constantly looking at challenging folks in, in terms of like multicultural psychology to see the areas where they do have um, power. I think it's, it's very easy for us to look at our suffering and spaces where we don't have power and privilege, you know, and to kind of like speak to that. But where are the spaces where you do have power, where you where you do have privilege, where you do have the opportunity to advocate for someone who doesn't? You know, I think of like adults and children, you know, adults can advocate for children where children don't have the same voice, where men can speak for women, where, you know, white folks can speak for people of color. So like you think of these different disparities where people with wealth you know, can speak for those who are, you know, impoverished. So there's so many areas for us where hopefully there's a pocket somewhere where you have power that you can advocate for another. And, and that's really the work that we're doing here. Um, in, you know, if I may, just really quickly on, we're working on healing cycles of harm for Afro-Latinx. Um, and, and this is Pure Lotus Wellness um, and Root which is Reclaiming Our Transcendence um, at wetakeroot.com. And we're starting these um, Healing Cycles of Harm um, workshops, Mondays, um, starting July 6th through the 24th, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern time. And so we're, we're doing this work um, to address the pain, <laughs> the pain and the <clears throat> suffering, you know, that people experience due to colorism that people experience do uh, experience because of you know the pains of of being born in in a, in a in a particular condition and how arbitrary um that is you know and and unpacking that and providing space for that um and th- this is important work it, it's i mean yesterday i took a mental health day i gotta be honest <laughs> no I, it's so important i want to hear a little bit more about some of the other organ- you mentioned new york city COVID care i know that you work with in the gratitude alliance so i'm um, currently uh i'm the director of global healing at gratitude alliance which is a wonderful nonprofit based out of oakland california 
Um, and the work that we do is lots of trauma healing workshops. We're also, the paradigm is completely different. So lots of the work that we do are targeting many communities of color. Um, and also we do work um, abroad. Um, some of the international work that we do um, takes place in Nepal. Um, and in Nepal, um, what we do there is doing trauma healing workshops um, with folks who are working with survivors of sexual trafficking um, and other girls and women who have been victims and survivors, rather, of gender-based violence. Um, so, and, and also working with teachers who are working with children who have been orphaned um, and different um, partners like the university, Tripovam University of Nepal there in Kathmandu, um, where we just recently trained um, we trained uh, master's level uh, psychology students to do this trauma healing workshops in their community. So some of the work that we've been doing now has been limited because of the pandemic. In uh, From 2017 to 2018, I worked as a director of behavioral health um, at West Oakland Health Council, and it's a federally qualified health center. Um, one of the initiatives that I was tasked with there um, was to start a pilot program um, where I was working with um, uh, Alameda County. So um, in the pilot project, we were working with the Oakland Conservatory of Music, as well as um, black elected officials um, and a couple of leaders in black psychology. Um, and so we were working together to establish a program that was holistic um, and integrative um, in terms of like integrated behavioral health care. So we designed a program that included drumming and yoga and um, acupuncture rather, um, chiropractor um, to support the people who were coming to receive services at our clinic, many of whom had dual diagnoses and were coming to our methadone clinic um, to receive you know, their care and their treatment. Lots of wonderful work has been happening in the world and I, I've just been super privileged to be a part of so many different efforts. Yeah, that's 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 um, kind of a lot of my work in, in a nutshell, and, and the prison work too. You know. Oh yeah, let's talk about the prison. Prison is certainly one of the prisons and the nursing homes is one of the big vectors for this uh, pandemic. I just think there needs to be some depopulating work done and some attention paid to to prisons. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you talk about what you think are the best practices there. The prisons are so populated. Um, I, I've worked in in uh, county jails and juvenile halls, mostly in the Bay Area and California. And also um, I was working as a staff psychologist um, at uh, the California Men's Colony um, to the Department of Corrections. And... You know, one of the things that was really difficult in those spaces um, was seeing how close, in, in retrospect, thinking of the pandemic and thinking of how close the the men are, and, or the women, mm -hmm. or the folks who are detained are, are together, and how that, that must be extremely difficult um, for the Division 52 of the APA, which is the International Psychology. There's um, a task force for COVID-19, and one of them is legal issues. So one of the things that we've been talking about is is different ways to kind of support um, the correctional psychologists um, and and thinking also you know um, suicidality is is a, a huge issue and and a, a big issue that 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 
setting experiences. Um, so thinking of, of, of COVID-19 and how this really kind of like brings the thought of, of our mortality, um, how to kind of like manage the, the mental health crises that's coming as a result of that, that also, you know, impairs people's immune system and their defenses towards fighting the, the, the ability to, you know, fighting the, the, the virus itself. So, so many things are related. So we're, we're really working on multiple fronts. I think that when all of this happened, I went into like high structure mode. You know, I think people have different defenses and different ways of how they manage their own anxiety and how they manage, you know, their own stress. And I, I think for me, when I get super stressed, um, I, I get into hyper planning mode and try to provide myself some structure. And, and I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's an adaptive strategy because um, it, it really helps me to organize myself. I, I don't have to do too much thinking. I, I go and I look at my planner. You know, I, I sit down the night before and I look at all the things that I need to do. Managing the anxiety and the depression and the frustration and all of the, the emotional whirlwinds that are coming at us from the pandemic to the riots to the inequality to, to all the BS that's happening um, and that's <laughs> been happening historically, right, as, as, a, as a world um, is, is to really um, be present in, in this moment. So right now I'm, I'm talking to Alex. The thing is, I, I think we really have to be able to strike a, some type of balance within ourselves, you know, and, and, I, and I think that um, it, it starts with us. It starts with the individual, you know, it, it, it really does, you know, begin with us increasing the spaces where we can have more compassion for one another and, and try to really um, reconfigure our impulsivity um, and our reactions and, and our thoughts and, and seeing more than what's in front of us. You know, um, yeah. that's, that's really our, our homework um, <laughs> as, as human beings is to kind of try to open up the scope and step outside and support someone else in their suffering while still holding your own. Like, those are big shoes. You know, and I think that's what everyone is being called for. One of the things that the COVID Care Network that really worked well for us is that we all understood that everyone's in this right now together. Everyone's suffering. Everyone's having a hard time. So just be, just be nice. You know, <laughs> just have some compassion. Just like have a little bit of patience with each other. Like it's not just you this time. You know, it's all of us. You know, and how that can be super uniting and, and just gradually start giving a little bit of time to someone else. And then you'll see how happy you become because you're being of help and support to another, how that then kind of like helps you and that helps them. And then it becomes kind of like this circle of like this growing flame of like love for, for my Dominican community, for my communities of color, for all the black men that are fucking dying for years and years on end. I mean, it's really difficult to kind of grow up in a place where, in Washington Heights where, where they come always policed, you know? And so they, yeah. my, my memories are of seeing guys being thrown against, you know, the being handcuffed and being thrown against, you know, the car and hitting their neck against the, the top of the roof of the car while they're being thrown into the seat in the back right. seat right and so like or, or being harassed so they go home when all we're doing is just playing outside 
you know, because we were being accused of, of, of loitering, you know, and, and we, we come from a country in the Dominican Republic where it's so warm, everyone's outside all the time. You know, I, I had a really difficult time kind of like growing up and also growing up with a, with a parent who was incarcerated. You know, I grew up going to kind of like jails and prisons to, to visit my dad. And I always had an association because my father was there that it was a safe place for me. And I think that those experiences as a child is what really supported me to be able to go in fearlessly. I, I'm not going to say I was 100% fearless, but to, in order to work as a woman who's four foot nine in a prison full of men, you have to have a little bit of balls, you know? <laughs> you know? So that in prison, it was, this, it was the first place where I actually had this renewed love and respect for um, correctional officers and for people who work in law enforcement. Oh my goodness, especially it was the first time that I had ever seen anybody do law enforcement well. Well, and I was like, you just, you just, re I have a refound hope um, that this can be done well, and it can, and it's, it's, it's far in between, but it's possible, you know, and, and it's going to be a, a huge shift that's going to be required, and it's, it's going to take a couple more generations, I feel. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, you know, like because this is how things move. But I, I, I definitely feel that there's promise and there's hope, and, and this too shall pass. And, and there's got to be a different cycle. There's got to be change. Be in community, you know. Be in community. In terms of, like, you know, one of the things that I'm doing right now is um, the Dominican Writers Association has lots of kind of like um, uh, opportunities on like um, people like on Saturdays, like I'll do like riding through the chaos. There's so many opportunities. There's so many ways that we can still be in connection. Um, if, if you can, you know, please do connect. You know, there's free services out there. You don't have to stay alone. You know, you're not alone. We're here together. You know, and so they always remember that. Yeah, I think that's important for people to remember as they're stuck in their homes. We all feel pain um, at different times for different reasons, um, and that that's normal, and that it's okay to live through that and to experience it. Um, and it's also okay to let it go, you know? So thank you so much for this. I, I could listen to you talk all day long. Thank you so much for talking to me. All right. Thank you. Yeah, Alex, we did it! Good job! <laughs> Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye.